From APM American Public Media, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. Over the past decade, many elite colleges have increased their efforts at admitting low-income students. If your family earns less than $75,000 a year and you get into an Ivy League school, chances are you won't have to pay any tuition out of pocket. Many low-income students are the first in their families to go to college, and there can be unanticipated financial and cultural barriers to succeeding in college that aren't easily solved by just giving students a foot in the door. Things like understanding how to ask for help from professors and tutors, learning how to get the best internships, speaking up in class, and finding people to hang out with when you can't afford to go to a fancy restaurant off campus. These challenges have spurred a nationwide movement of first-generation student clubs, which provide a way for first-gen students to support each other. Harvard has long been financially generous to low-income students, but it's not the kind of environment where it's easy to talk openly about being from a disadvantaged background. I recently sat down with Anna Barrows, president of the First Generation Student Union, and Anthony Jack, a doctoral student at Harvard who studies race and class at elite colleges. As an undergrad, Jack was a first-generation student at Amherst College, from which he graduated in 2007. I started off the conversation by asking Anna about her road to Harvard. I'm originally from Newark, New Jersey. Um, Grew up in a two-family home in uh, Habitat Humanity Home. Um, I mean, we always did well in school, me and my sisters, there's four of us, and I have a older sister who actually graduated from Harvard and a little sister here now. Um, But before my older sister got into Harvard, we didn't know that we could compete on a national level. We just did well because that's what we were supposed to do. But with my older sister getting into college, it kind of uh, broadened, especially my horizons of what I thought was possible for me. And it was only through Harvard's really generous financial aid package that I was able to attend college any college. Um, were you thinking you were a, what, what were you thinking was going to be your path before you found out about this possibility? I, I didn't think about the future. I, it wasn't possible for me to think about it in a realistic way. I didn't, I didn't even allow my mind to go that far. How about you? Oh, God. My mom will always say, I knew I was going to college. Um, even though I don't remember that, um, like Anna, I just did well in school. I was fortunate enough to, so the Head Start program that I was in um, ended up putting me into Coconut Grove Elementary, which was uh, the slightly better school in my neighborhood. Um, and I got into the honors program there, and it kind of started. It, I, did, I, I did a pre-IB program at middle school, and so there was always a expectation within my program that we were going to school, but everybody just thought state school. Everyone thought Florida, Florida State. But then I switched to a private school my senior year to Gulliver Prep. And at the end of the, at, towards the end of the football season, my coach called me into my office and said, uh, Coach Falstick at Amherst called and was wondering, did I have any students who could make the cut into Amherst academically? And my coach said, yeah, put us in conversation. And Amherst became on my radar. Before that, I had never heard of Amherst. Um, before that, I couldn't even tell you all the Ivies. All the Ivies before that were Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and the only reason why we knew Princeton is because of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So as someone who has studied uh, the experience of people from uh, lower-income families, first-generation 
students. What, what are the unique challenges, in a nutshell, that first-gen students face? So there are certain issues that all lower-income students face. And that usually has to do with how much economic capital they have. Meaning, um, so a prime example, just like at Columbia and other schools at Harvard and Amherst, um, schools operate under the assumption that everyone leaves during spring break. That's a wrong assumption after you open your doors and say, come all you students who don't necessarily have the money to pay to go to school, let alone pay for these luxuries. And so what happens is students sometimes stay on campus and must fend for themselves. Um, and, and at Amherst, actually, that happened to us, and we basically lived off of ramen and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a week. A lot of first-gen low-income students are here at Harvard for four years and never feel like that they belong here. And for me, it was only recently, very recently, that I started speaking up in class that I started trying to make an effort to get to know my professors. Because so when I first arrived here, uh, this word first generation wasn't even being thrown around at all. It was just complete overwhelming silence. Um, and today, that's not the case, mostly because of this first generation movement that has swept across really college campuses in the nation. You know, I recently received an email from a admitted Harvard student who told me that the first generation programming at Harvard was the a huge motivating factor for them to apply here. And I was thinking first generation programming like that didn't exist at all when I was here. I often think about uh, the fact that people who live in elite worlds have access to social networks and other kinds of things that uh, folks from other backgrounds don't even know exist. Yeah. It's almost like you're in a hallway uh, and you can't see all of the doors that the other people can see. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, how can you access these opportunities or take advantage of these opportunities if you don't even know they exist also? Um, so it feels like once you get here, you're already behind because you don't know, you know that hidden curriculum. You don't know where to go for help. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing to help you in the long run. Um, so you could get straight A's. It's not just about hard work, though. If you don't have these connections, let's say you get all straight A's and this has happened to students before and then can't get a job, can't get this fellowship because they don't have those connections. It's not just about entry. It's about supporting these students once you've you know, admitted them and once you've brought them here. If these colleges are saying they are truly committed to socioeconomic diversity, then that needs to be shown through you know, action. What kind of supports do you actually have for first-generation students? What kind of programming do you have for these students to make sure that they aren't just surviving, but they're thriving on their campuses? And I wanna, I wanna add something to that. If Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Penn and Amherst and Williams, all these schools really are opening their doors in a very, very real way, have they extended the invitation without preparing for the occasion? We are trying to help them prepare for the occasion of every class from 2019, 2020, 2021. And hopefully when my niece, who's 11 years old, comes to one of these schools, though I am biased towards Amherst, um, when, they, when she arrives as a freshman, she 
even though she would have me to coach her and different things, she would not be experiencing the same things that my students experience now because we're going to try to push Harvard's and Yale's and Michigan's and UVA's and Wisconsin's and all these other schools um, to to pay attention to what's going on once they get in. Mm-hmm. Now, do you do you feel an interest or or not in being a social you know class awakening for? your more privileged peers? Well, I think about the the way I see the first generation movement. I don't see this I don't see this just as an organization. I think it is a movement. I think it's unique because it's the first time that students of this class identity have mobilized effectively um, in elite college settings. I think there, of course, there were low-income students being admitted before, but, you know, they just suck it up and whatever, um, did whatever they had to do to survive. But this is really, I, in my mind, the way I see it is that we're challenging the perceptions of first-gen students as being empty vessels who just come to college, the college fills them up. No, first-gen students have something valuable to contribute to this community. I think that FGSU, my group, is, you know, trying to shift the conversation from one of stigma, you know, to one of affirmation and pride, um, that this is not something you have to be ashamed about. Acknowledging the, the extra, you know, mile you had to go to get here, why should that be looked down upon? And of course, it's not just about building a community, but also about pushing for meaningful institutional change not just, you know, rolling out programming, but actually really thinking about what can we do to facilitate this transition? What can we do to make sure that students actually have a transformative experience at Harvard? We think that if these colleges, these elite colleges have made a commitment to, you know, being socioeconomically diverse, then it's their duty to live up to that. And that requires support, not just entry. I spoke with Anna Barros, president of Harvard's First Generation Student Union, and Anthony Jack, a doctoral student and resident tutor at Harvard. You can learn more about First Generation students, including our 2014 documentary, The New Face of College, on our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll also find podcasts about a range of issues in higher ed and K-12 education, and you can browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. We are on Facebook at American.RadioWorks, and you can follow us on Twitter at AM RadioWorks. Support for American RadioWorks comes from Lumina Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media. <laughs>